Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kosesanov. I am delighted and really excited to have with me as my guest this week, Debbie Hampton. Debbie Hampton is the creator of thebestbrainpossible.com. She's also an author. She's written two books, one called Beat Depression and Anxiety, and the other one, Sex, Suicide, and Serotonin. And I think all of those things are going to give the listeners a little bit of a clue as about what we're going to be talking about today. But I'll let Debbie do most of the talking because she has a fascinating story to tell. And luckily, it's a story, hopefully, and definitely with a happy ending. So first of all, Debbie, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you for inviting me, Tatiana. I'm looking forward to it. It's my absolute pleasure. So Debbie, I think the best thing to do is you start and tell us how, how you actually, what caused you to sit down and make something like a, uh, the best brain possible. There's always a history and a story and yours is very profound and it's a bit like a kind of a V story, isn't it? It's a journey down and it's a journey back up. So let's start with maybe the first half of that journey and tell us the story down. Well, it is a long story. But um, the the first half of the story involves the first 40 years of my life. And I had a pretty normal childhood, made my high school sweetheart. We went through college together and stayed married for 18 years. And I was always an anxious kind of, um, I don't know, not not tending towards depression, but um, I learned to be reactive and I learned emotional reactivity from my environment. So, and I didn't learn a lot of mental health tools. So I didn't have a lot of resources. And my marriage ended up being unemotionally abusive he was what you might call a narcissist. I don't think he started out the way, but as life has a way of doing it, it changed both of us. And as he became more powerful in the world, I became more withdrawn and more anxious and more scared and more closed in my own little world and more questioning of my abilities and so um we were made about 15 years or maybe 10 and we had a child the first of my sons and at that point I started staying home until then I'd worked and I started staying home taking care of the kids and soon thereafter we had another child And as many mothers may know, when you become a stay-at-home mom and you don't have your own income and you're not interacting with the outside world, you become more and more powerless and you become more dependent on others. So that was one other way in which my abilities, my confidence, and my world, and my mental health was shrinking. And in between the two children, um, my brother, who was my best friend in the world, 
and he is or was only 10 months older than me. And I mean, we kind of grew up like twins. I mean, he was my very best friend. He um, got sick and died of AIDS and he was gay. And this was back when the AIDS epidemic was taking place, the first wave. And we didn't really even know what caused it. Mm-hmm. But I promised him when he found out he was HIV positive that I would do anything it took to take care of him. And I did. I took care of him for two years. And I was taking care of him and taking care of an infant. And I felt like Gombe. I mean, I felt like I was being stretched and I wasn't good enough for either one of them. I wasn't as good as I wanted to be. And I mean, along with the marriage, I mean, maybe you could tell everything was just piling in on me and my confidence and was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And my mental health was getting worse and worse. I do think that depression and mental health issues can, for some people, are totally biological. But for most of us, it's life. And it's how we deal with what happens and how we frame it to ourselves. And if we're able to rebound, and if we're given time to even breathe in between events happening, well, in this series of events, I was not given time to breathe. Even if I knew how to rebound, I was not given time. It was like boom, 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 one thing after another. And um, along in there were miscarriages, um, other things. And my my ex-husband and I moved continuously. And I don't mean like a couple miles. I mean across the U.S., state to state to state. And we did this because he was climbing the corporate ladder. And he, did, he every time he moved to a better job, and we gained socioeconomic status very quickly because, I mean, that's what we were told you were supposed to do in life. So that's what we did. I mean, we didn't really give it any thought. But with every move, my world got smaller because I didn't have any friends. I, had to, I didn't have a support network. And I had to establish, like, care for the kids. And then um, a social network for myself. I usually plugged into an exercise studio everywhere we went. And I was also active at the kids' schools. But, I mean, I hope I'm portraying it as I didn't start out mentally unhealthy. But it's just over 18 years, I mean, life just pounded me. And I didn't have the tools to cope with it. And I didn't have a support network. So my answer was to try to commit suicide. And um, 
their suicide runs, it's been in my family. My grandfather, his father, I have a cousin, they all shot themselves in the head. And I, I don't think if that, if you're not exposed to that, maybe you don't think of it as an option. But because I'd been exposed to it at a young age and all my life, it was always an option. So um, we were living in Florida at the time in a million dollar house with a Porsche in the three car garage, a swimming pool in the backyard and like the marble countertops. And I was the most miserable I'd ever been in my life and probably the most mentally unhealthy. So I overdosed on some pills and I don't know, cough medicine and some, I didn't really have strong stuff. So all I managed to do was mess things up more. So after that, my ex-husband threw me out of the house, um, filed a restraining order against me, <laughs> and kept me away from the kids for about two months. So um, during that time, my dad came down from North Carolina, got me and took me back up to North Carolina with him. And I received counseling and kind of got things back on an even keel. And I don't know, something inside of me finally about time clicked and I realized that my my ex-husband was I had to protect myself from him and also had to protect my children. So I I wouldn't say I totally deceived him, but I said whatever I need to say to get back in the house and we stayed married for two more years and I played the good wife. And I mean, I didn't argue. I didn't cause conflict. And I didn't really know what I was waiting for, but I knew when I saw it, I would know it. So one day he came home and he wanted us to move to Idaho. And I even went out there and looked at it, but nothing about the place or the move felt right to me. It would be taking me further away from my home network, which was on the East Coast of the States. Um, like I said, it would be entrenching me further with a person that didn't have my best interest in mind, or the children for that matter. Mm -hmm. So I told him I didn't want to go. So he came home and proposed that we have a commuter marriage which in his mind meant that he would go where his job took him or needed him to go. And he would position me and the kids at one place and just come visit. So I agreed and I let him buy a house in North Carolina where we both were from and where my family still was. And so the movie trucks came and packed all of our belongings 
and one truck was going to Idaho and one truck was going to North Carolina. And when the moving truck was already unpacked and we were safe, I informed him that I had already filed for divorce in Florida. So, needless to say, that didn't sit really well with him. <laughs> I so, can imagine. Oh, yeah. Because he's like a control freak, a very powerful man. And I think he thought that this would be an easy way out for him, where he could control me. And I don't know. Avoid the messiness of a divorce. And um, so needless to say, that started a decade of him harassing me legally. And I mean, it was one lawsuit after another. And I, I spent so much money on lawyers and in courts. I mean, I could have bought a house for what I spent, but that continued to degrade on my mental health and my stress and anxiety. And my answer to solve my problems was to find another man because that's what I'd known. And that was my first go-to. So I started an on and off relationship with a guy that we were on and off for about two years, but I was totally obsessed with him. And it, he wasn't as narcissistic as my ex, but he was, he was on that side of the, of the equation. And when he broke up with me one more time, and my ex-husband filed another lawsuit against me for cohabitation with this man, which we did not cohabitate, but it didn't matter. I would have to find in court anyway. I tried to kill myself again, and this time I very nearly succeeded. I gave myself a severe brain injury, I was in a coma in the hospital for a week. And when I did come to, um, I had absolutely no memory. I had, I couldn't speak. All I could do is make sounds. Um, my hands shook uncontrollably. Um, let's see, I, I didn't have the mental faculties or cognizance of a person, a regular person, I did, I was severely brain injured. So what happened next was, what do you think? My ex-husband sued me for custody of the kids and took them away and moved out of state. So here I am, severely brain injured, and Max Hilton sues me and takes my kids away. I mean, if I thought things were bad before, oh my God, they were really bad now. But as most 
challenges in life can be. It was a wake-up call to me. I had no choice at that point but to change things and to start doing things differently. I mean, I couldn't pretend everything was okay if I wanted to. Right. So, I mean, I pretty much quit trying to put forth the facade that I had my whole life that things were okay and that I was okay. And for the first time in my life, I, I wasn't okay. And I mean, I was severely brain injured. I, my mind could only pretty much handle the here and now. Uh, there was very little recollection of the past. When I was freshly brain injured, I didn't know my kids' ages. I didn't know, like, anything about my history. I didn't even know that I was divorced. I didn't know my brother had died. And slowly, over the first year, I went to like rehab and I slept a lot and my brain started healing a little bit naturally, but it plateaued at around a year. And about that same time, my, I have another brother and my other brother and I went to Hawaii and I think he just proposed the trip because he knew that I needed something to look forward to, something good in my life. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Hawaii, we went snorkeling in this bay. Now, I used to be a competitive swimmer. And, I mean, all through college and high school, in the summer, I was lifeguard. I'm a good swimmer. But with brain injury, I was not nearly as coordinated. And... Um, we were in this little bay, this secluded bay in Hawaii, and I, we're right at the mouth of where the bay opens up into the ocean. And I kicked off my fin on one of my feet on some lava rocks below the surface, and I was not nearly as strong a swimmer without a fin, and the waves were crashing me into the rocks and I was having a hard time just keeping my head above water but I fought really hard to survive and I made it over to some rocks and lava rocks that were cruel, coral and they were cutting my fingers and hands and legs so I saw this sailboat in the middle of the bay and I swam out to the sailboat and hung it over the side of it and yelled, help. And this, this man came above board and rowed me to shore in this little wooden canoe kind of boat. And it wasn't until later that the significance of that occurred to me. But I thought, okay, six months earlier, you tried to kill yourself. And here you were in the middle of the ocean, almost drowning. 
and you fought really hard not to die. What is going on? Why didn't I just slip under the water and finish what I started? And from that incident, I realized that I didn't want to die. That what was convincing me that I wanted to die was my mind. It was my thoughts and my way of thinking that convinced me that life was bad or that there was no reason to live or that I was bad. That wasn't the case. The case was I wanted to live. And I thought that I was worth keeping alive and that life was worth living. Do you think that a lot of people have to get to that point? I mean, it seems to me I've, I've talked to so many people and um, experienced this story over and over again that sometimes you just have to hit rock bottom literally rock rock bottom before you kind of go huh something has to change are we what do you think about that are we are we like that as a race as a as a species that sometimes it's just got to get so bad before we actually understand that things have to change um i know for me it was true i mean there were several several incidents before that and before i brain injured myself that I could have said, oh, maybe I need to change what I'm doing because that's pretty bad. But I don't think everybody has to get there, but I think a lot of us do. A lot of us that were hard-headed like me, I look at my sons and they are so much more aware and, I don't know, cognizant than I was. So maybe that generation doesn't have to. But I don't know, my generation, we weren't taught the same things that the younger people are being taught. And yeah, I think I had to get to that point. And maybe some others do too. What is saying the it's the saying by Anais Nan that when the pain uh, staying closed up like flower becomes too great, then you start to bloom. And only then, when the pain gets so bad, do you start to venture out. And I know that was true in my case. Right. So what happened? What did you decide to undertake in order, you know, you've had this amazing revelation. Um, how did you, I mean, you know, if you're not in the business and you're not involved, where did you, where did you start looking? How did you start to, to try and find out how to help yourself? Well, the first thing I had to do was figure out how to heal my brain. And that realization showed me that I wanted to live. And from that point on, I started acting like it. I would say up until then, I wasn't sure. And I maybe was even entertaining thoughts of trying to kill myself again. But after that, I was like, I do want to live. And if I'm going to live, I am not staying like this. 
So I started learning everything I could about the brain and about healing my brain and what was an instrumental, pivotal piece of information for me was a book by Norman Deutsch called The Brain That Changes Itself. And in that book are stories of people born with half a brain, people who've had horrendous accidents or strokes, but their brains recovered. And it was about how they recovered and how the brain functions. And I realized that every brain is different and every brain injury is different. But here was a manual telling me exactly how to heal my brain. So I did it. And I started with that. And then I was like a sponge. I tried every alternative therapy. And if it helped, I continued. If it didn't, I quit. I learned as much as I could about the brain. And I started living a life that supported and encouraged my physical brain health and mental brain health. And that's just as much a part of health is your mental health. And I'm not saying there aren't biological conditions. There are most definitely are bi biological factors, but a lot of it boils down to our lifestyle habits, what we do every day with our bodies, with our brains, what we put in our bodies, the minds, I mean, the thoughts that we subject our brain to. What I learned is that your brain is capable of change all throughout your life. It's a capability called neuroplasticity. And they used to think that the brain only changed during critical periods in youth. And while it's true, the brain is much more neuroplastic in youth because think of all the things it has to learn. Your brain changes from the day you're born until the day you die. And if you don't harness that ability, it changes based on whatever happens in your life, good and bad. And a lot of what stays with our brains is the bad stuff. Because think about it, your brain's priority is from way back in evolution. Our brain's priority is keeping us alive. And this tends to make anxious, like very sensitive, reactive brains that hang on to traumatic memories or fears or bad things because you're not going to further the, the species by remembering a good napping spot. You're <laughs> going to, you're going to further the species by remembering where you almost got eaten. And today that translates as our brains holding on to trauma 
um, any form of trauma, cruelty, violence, um, conflict, hurt, pain, our brains hang on to those things. It's called a negativity bias, but that's the natural inclination of our brains. But you can learn things to do in your life to tilt your brain back in a more positive direction. So, so that all the wounds from my 20 years of being married, of my brother dying, all those things. I mean, that's the natural negativity bias of my brain holding on to those things and making me depressed and suicidal. But there are things you can do to combat that and to help your brain stay balanced and not veer to the side of depression and anxiety and suicide. And it's a conscious decision. And I'm not saying it's as easy and I get really frustrated with this, just think positive. I'm not saying it's as easy as that. I'm saying that's part of it. Part of all of our lives, there's bad and there's good in everybody's life, every day. And it's a choice every day, whether you beat yourself up and marinate your brain in the bad and the hurt and the pain, which is what I did. And I'm not saying ignore that or pretend it doesn't exist. Deal with it. Feel it. Do what you have to do to process it. But along with that, every day in your life, there's also good. And because of the negativity bias in our brains, a lot of times we have to make the conscious decision to look for the good and to notice it and internalize it. And I mean, after my kids were taken away and I was brain injured, I had to get out my magnifying glass and look for the good. And sometimes it was as simple as a really good tune playing on my iPod or the sun warming my cheeks or a cat curling up in my lap and going to sleep. And those are small joys, but they are joys. And are you helping yourself by beating yourself up and thinking about the pain and the bad things over and over and over? One thing I always tell people to ask themselves is in any moment, ask yourself, am I helping myself? Or hurting myself and then ask yourself and make the conscious decision okay what is my intent my intent is to help myself so maybe you reach for different thoughts maybe you reframe the thoughts there are lots of tools like thought reframing visualization meditation 
that you can use to work with what is happening in your life where you don't ignore the reality of what's going on, but you don't only see the bad. Because all too often, that's all we see. And if that's all you see and you think, that's all you're going to feel. And your brain responds accordingly. It makes neurochemicals um, according to what you think and according to what you feel. And that sets up all kinds of systems in your body, your adrenal system, um, your stress response, cortisol. Cortisol is responsible for most disease. I mean, stress. Yeah. And a, a lot of a lot of what's happening today with the anxiety, the depression, the disease. We can help with our lifestyles. And our lifestyle includes what we think, who we surround ourselves with, what we do, and what we put in our bodies. So let's break that down a little bit. So what kind of things were, were useful to you? And, and how, how did you, I mean, you said that your, your brain health after the suicide attempt started to recover and then it plateaued. And once you discovered this, uh, this work, the, the ideas of neuroplasticity, what things were you putting into place? What kind of practices were you doing and exercises were you doing? And how, how did the improvement start to show itself? Well, there are two, fa two ways to encourage neuroplasticity. One, one avenue is through external stimuli. Mm -hmm. And that would be um, exercising. Exercise is one of the best things you could do for your brain and your body. Um, it's like miracle growth for your brain. <laughs> it increases your genesis, the birth of new brain cells. It oxygenates your brain. And, I mean, I exercise every single day for years and that was to help my brain recover but i mean people don't have to do that but think of how sedentary our lifestyles are these days your brain some people believe that i think it's john brady he's written a bunch of books but he says that the brain's primary purpose is to move our bodies. Think of how much we don't move in our current lives. And if that's your brain's primary purpose, what kind of shape is it going to be in? <laughs> so I'm saying, do build activity into your life. Take the stairs, park away from where you need to go. Um, take walks. Don't sit. Like I do work a job. But I try to get up every hour and run in place or go up and down the steps. So, I mean, I physically, I started exercising every day. I also started doing yoga. Um, I do hot yoga, which is yoga in 100 degrees. You don't have to do that either. But do something. 
find what you like and do it. So I started exercising. I also started washing and learning about how to feed my brain and my body. I'm vegetarian. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to be, but that's what works for me. But a plant and vegetable fruit-based diet with lots of clean protein and omega-3s is ideal for your brain. I mean, find what works for you. I have a friend that needs meat. She's tried being vegetarian and it just doesn't work for her. And that's fine. But feed your brain and your body and feed it good stuff and find what it likes and what works for you. And the second way to encourage neuroplasticity is internally. That was externally. Internally is through your mind, through your thoughts, your emotions, and visualization. So I started meditating every day. And at first, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But I mean, I that's part of meditation is it's a learning experience and it's a, a training experience and what what i think of it now a lot of people think of it as a spiritual thing i don't think of it like that i think of it as a mental health tool and what you're doing is training your brain to focus and the way that you direct neuroplasticity is with your attention. And that's what meditation does. It trains you to focus your attention. Um, you have a network in your brain called the default mode network. And that's where your brain goes whenever you're not consciously paying attention to what you're doing like when you're daydreaming or when you're ruminating. And a lot of that is painful, hurtful, negative stuff. And the way that you override that is by focusing. And like I said, you direct your plasticity with your attention. Like physically, if something, uh, my manual dexterity was really, really messed up after my brain injury. And I would practice writing. I would do jacks. I would shuffle cars. I would stack cups. If something was difficult physically, I knew that's exactly where I needed to repetitively do stuff to retrain and regrow the pathways in the brain. And part of that is paying attention and focusing on what I was doing because that's an essential component of neuroplastic change. But meditation also changes your brain. I mean, focus and meditation is part of learning to focus your brain. Visualization um, 
you can think of it as pictures, you can think of it as imagining, a lot of people verbalize. That is also focusing your brain and it has real physical consequences in your body. Your brain responds to what runs through your mind's eye almost identically as if you're actually doing it. I, I like to say, when you cut your finger, you don't have to tell your body how to heal the cut. It knows how to do that, right? Thank goodness you don't have to because I wouldn't know what to tell it. <laughs> I like to think of visualization as harnessing that energy, as harnessing that innate wisdom. And I mean, your scientist is backed by hard science. In the, the book I told you about by Norman Doyce, The Brain That Changes Itself, he tells of an experiment in there where one group actually did finger exercises and another group just visualized doing the same exercises with like a coach encouraging them. And they showed almost as much physical change in the musculature of their fingers as the group that actually did the exercises. And I use visualization extensively to help heal my brain. I would visualize it growing connections. I'd visualize it finding the information it needed to really quickly through pathways. And whether it really helped or not, I don't know. There aren't, I mean, I didn't do tests, but you know as well as I do that the placebo effect is real. Absolutely. So, so if I thought it helped, it helped. Absolutely. So where are you now? What, I mean, you know, you, you described how, what a bad state you were in after you came out of the coma and um, how much have you managed to achieve? I mean, to look at you and, and to hear you, our listeners can't see you. I have the luxury of doing that. You're a beautiful lady. You're dynamic. Um, you look like it's all a hundred percent. Is that the case? <laughs> well, you've got to remember this, this was um, 11 years ago, mm -hmm. and I would say I did nothing but recover from the brain injury for about four years. I mean, that was my focus from the time I got up in the morning until the time I went to bed at night. And I haven't even touched on, I did all kinds of alternative therapies to help heal, but neurofeedback, um, cranial sacral massage. I still do hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, so I, I don't want to give the wrong idea to people that this was easy or effortless or that you could just sit around for five years and everything will be okay. I learned what would help my brain physically alternative therapies and things I can do. But what I'm saying is all of us can do 
a tremendous amount in our own lives. And so at about five years, I decided that I needed to start living again. I mean, I need to quit focusing on just healing because what was I healing for if I wasn't going to live? So I, I started a blog and I um, started, I wrote a book and that was my first book called Be Depression and Anxiety by Changing Your Brain. And basically, I mean, I just, those were my focuses. And within the last year, um, I took a job. I worked part-time for a local university doing social media marketing and writing and that kind of stuff. But I'm still um, working on my blog, and I published another book. Um, that one's called Sex, Suicide, and Serotonin. And that's by actually a publisher in the UK called Trigger Press. And that's my memoir. That tells all the dirty details <laughs> of my life prior to the brain injury. And like what made me think I wanted to kill myself and how recovered and what has happened since. And I would say that if you just met me, you would think, oh, she's normal. But if you spent any amount of time with me, you would say, okay, something's not quite right with her. <laughs> I like to liken it as to maybe someone on the spectrum. I don't get a lot of humor. Um, as you may tell, I have a little aphasia. A little problems communicating still and I still have memory issues and some manner dexterity issues but I mean in a lot of ways my life is so much better I'll trade these little things any day for the happiness and awareness and contentment that I found and it all boils down to taking control of my brain and taking control of my life. And this was available to me all along. But like we said before, for me, it had to get really bad before I, it's like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. She was wearing the ruby slippers the whole time. So was I. And Basically, I think we all are. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, your blog, that's how I got to know you because I've actually been following your blog for a while and it's absolutely brilliant. I totally recommend it to anybody out there. But what was it that made you um, want to do? I mean, you do coaching as well. I mean, you've now taken what happened to you and you're using it to help other people, which I think is amazing. Um, but, you know, what... What actually drove you to do that? What was what was your decision to, to give back or to just help other people or to continue your healing process? Well, I think I was so amazed and impressed that, like I said, at the realization that I had this power all along to change my life and to heal myself. And 
I was brainwashed. And I wouldn't say I was intentionally brainwashed by anybody with bad intent, but it's the way that we were brought up. I mean, we weren't. We were brought up to believe in the fairy tale, in, in put our power in the medical community or do everything everybody else told us that was good for us. I wasn't taught and never thought that I could trust myself and that I knew what was best for me. And I just want other people to know this and to realize this and to take that power to better themselves and their brains and their lives. We're not victims unless we choose to be. We all have the power to take little steps, little decisions to better our lives in some way every single day. And that is the choice. A lot of times we can't choose what happens around us, but we can choose what happens within us, within our heads. Very, very wise words indeed. I can't believe it, but our time is almost up. I still have a couple of questions for you, though. But before we go into those closing questions, you've talked so much about how important um, the way that you think really is. And, and, you know, I'm with you on that one. That's why I retrained as a hypnotherapist, because, you know, I, too, have realized how massively important um, our our thoughts are um, and how we think and how we act and how we interpret the world around us. And that's some of the things that you talk about in your book, Depression and Anxiety or Beating Depression and Anxiety. Is this, is there a sort of like um, a very simple take-home message maybe that you can tell people, of course, other than buy your book and read it, <laughs> um, but uh, which I highly encourage. Um, but, you know, for for. I, I would imagine there's um, millions of women out there who have heard your story and immediately associate with that and who are in exactly the same position. But sometimes, you know yourself, when you're very anxious and depressed, you, you, you feel almost incapable of moving out of that to a place where you can start, your, help, you know, start to help yourself. What would be something that you would give as a message to to those women perhaps who are listening and even men perhaps who feel very trapped in their lives what's how how do you get out of that what's the first step that you can make to help yourself i think the most important thing underlying all of that is are you being nice to yourself are you being kind to yourself the i think under mental health is your relationship with yourself. And it goes back to what I said before. Are you helping yourself or are you hurting yourself? Are you being kind to yourself or are you being mean to yourself? And just because you grew up with somebody saying critical things to you, you've got to become aware that that is the filter that you're seeing the world through. 
And is that what you want? Is that what you think? Just because it's what your parents or an ex-husband or somebody else told you was reality doesn't mean it's reality. Reality is made by the filter that you put on what happens. And that is made by what you say to yourself. And you are in control of that. And that all boils down to the relationship that you have with yourself. I used to think I was an extremely compassionate person. I mean, to the point of it being a problem. I would forgive anybody anything. I would do anything to gain somebody's approval. But when it came to myself, I couldn't forgive myself for anything. And I criticized myself mercilessly. I wouldn't do that to anybody else. Why was I doing it to myself? So think about it. Are you being nice to yourself? Are you helping yourself get through this life and get better? Or are you hurting yourself? And if you're sad and depressed and anxious, I would bet that you're hurting yourself. And underlying getting better and improving your life is improving your relationship with yourself. You don't deserve that. You deserve your help and your love. Right. And so did I. Hallelujah. I, I, singing from the same hymn sheet, I totally, totally back that up 100%. It makes all the difference. It does. It absolutely does. A lot of the techniques that you've talked about, though, um, if we just take away the kind of emotional aspect and just think about the really hard physical aspect, um, there's a, probably a lot of people out there with brain injuries who've had strokes and other, you know, maybe some kind of trauma that's that's happened. Um, most people don't perhaps recover as much as their potential would allow. So again, you know, your story I think is so powerful because it shows how much you can actually really physically help that wonderful brain that we have in it. I mean, it's, it's an amazing recovery. Everybody's, every brain injury is different and every brain is different of and the, the capacity to heal is different, but I guarantee you everybody can improve and you don't know what you're capable of until you try. And the medical community is very quick to put labels and limits on us, on people with brain injuries or mental health issues. But you don't have to believe those limits or accept them. The limit is up to you. Those are great, great words indeed. I always have three little questions that I ask all of my guests um, at the end of the interview. London Heal is all about mind, body and spirit, medicine and health. And I like to kind of encapsulate those ideas in health, happiness and serenity. So 
what does health actually mean to you? What does that word mean for you? Well, like I said before, Tatiana, healthy people typically think of it as physical, but health is all encompassing. It's our mind, it's our body, it's our environments, it's the people we surround ourselves with. Because we absorb those things. Emotion is contagious. Um, you can't be healthy if you're in an environment with all kinds of toxic people or toxic chemicals and no sunshine. So health is mental and physical. It's, it's our world. It's, it's our day. Very good answer. Absolutely agree with that 100%. And what about happiness? I always think happiness is something that is, um, it's, it's something which is so important. And you said yourself, so many people go through life with their eyes closed and don't see the joys in the world. But what makes Debbie happy? What, what do you go out to do? And what do you search out to give you that little buzz? Well, I'm probably going to disappoint you here, but I think happiness is way overrated. There's a lot more to life than happiness. And there's meaning, there's joy, there's gratitude, there's appreciation, there's health, there's love. Happiness is just one emotion. Our, our lives are on a scale of emotion from good to bad and without the negative emotions you can't have the good emotions life is all of them and I would say happiness is balance it's accepting the bad with the good and not being shocked and not overreacting and realizing that there is still good and noticing it and realizing that maybe something good is just around the corner tomorrow or the next day. There's going to be something bad too, but there's always going to be both. You never, never, never have one without the other. And it's up to you to recognize the good and not just the bad. Because it's all too easy for us just to focus and stress on the problems and what is bad. It's a conscious, happiness then is a conscious choice in that way. Right. It's a balance. I totally agree. That's a very, very nice way of putting it actually. Wonderful. And the last one is serenity. I, I love this word because I think it's a word we just don't use enough, really. And we all rush around in these crazy lives that we lead. And sometimes we just never take the time to stop. Now, you said that you, you meditate. Um, what, uh, do you have other practices, spiritual or otherwise, throughout your day that you build in intentionally to just give you those little moments where you can turn down the noise? Well, I practice what I preach, and I use, I think the biggest tool that I use throughout the day is I bring myself and my mind back into the present. 
if I find myself getting stressed or unhappy, I come back to the present and remind myself of what is good in the present. Um, I also do yoga, I meditate, and I think more than anything, what brings serenity and happiness is gratitude. Our brains habituate to the norm, meaning they don't notice that we have heat, that there isn't a tornado outside or an earthquake or a raging fire or that somebody close to us died. Your brains don't notice that every day. But if it did happen, I guarantee you, you would notice it and focus on it. So don't you deserve to notice and focus on what is good? That I have money in the bank. I have a cat that sits on my lap and purrs. I got to go to yoga. The sun is out. I mean, all in all, that's a pretty good day. I mean, that is serenity to me. That's wonderful. I love that. I love that. Debbie, thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak to me today. I really honor you and I um, have great respect for what you're doing. And um, I really want to acknowledge you too, because I think it's wonderful that you've gone through such a traumatic experience, come out bigger, better, stronger, and more fabulous at the end. And as I said before, giving it back and paying it forwards, which is, I think, absolutely amazing. And highly encourage everybody who's listening to check out thebestbrainpossible.com with Debbie Hampton and read her blog. It's fascinating. It's full of really great information that will really help you. It's also, as you are yourself, incredibly inspiring. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tatiana, and thank your listeners. I will certainly do that. I'm sure they'd be delighted. Thank you. Well, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of London Heal, another fascinating interview with another amazing, amazing guest. Debbie is really um, extraordinarily inspiring, um, a wonderful person who has totally turned her life around and really wants to help other people and in similar situations so that they don't have to go quite so far down as she ever went and help people realize that as she very eloquently stated happiness is sometimes really a choice and it's not an easy choice and it's not an easy thing to do and that's why wonderful people such as Debbie are out there trying to help and share their knowledge. So please check out her blog at thebestbrainpossible.com and check out her books, Beating Depression and Anxiety and Sex, Suicide and Serotonin. Well, dear listeners, that just leaves me to ask you, as I do every week, to please rate and review us on iTunes, support us so that we can get more and more of these important messages and information out to those people that really need it. And if you know anybody that you think would benefit from having heard Debbie's story, um, please pass on the information, pass on the links to the podcast and to her website. And tell all of your friends and anybody that you think might be interested, because that's what we're there for. We're there to provide you with the information so that you can make educated choices 
the things that are the best for you. And that just leaves me to wish you, as always, health, happiness, and serenity. <laughs>